You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. from the home of the national champion umd bulldogs that works sure, sure. okay it's the 252 <laughs> i'm just learning of this right now oh it's breaking news time uh sports talk radio is done by academics so for example i'm chris moore he's sam alberry i'm chris garrett and we're joined by sarah shady i'm back that's right is our this public- our first time repeat repeat guest it is, it is. Wow. Yes. at this wow, point you're almost at this point it's almost special correspondent pretty much yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> editor at large mm-hmm. uh, on assignments uh, and public philosopher sarah shady and let's just admit it college basketball fan uh yeah. slash expert sarah shady i feel like final four is a little bit in a rear view mirror we can officially announce that the virginia cavaliers won i know that that was up in the air last week because we recorded the morning before it uh, any final four, final, final four thoughts, Sarah? Um, seems like a good tournament. Yeah, this year was one of my favorite tournaments just in terms of consistently really good games to watch, mm-hmm. really fun games to watch. It's what's so great about college basketball mm-hmm. that down to the last second, you often don't know who the winner is going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and what was interesting is, is is that carried through and actually escalated as it went on. Yeah. Usually those great, if I think of the great finishes, oftentimes they're first, second round games. But this, the mid-weekend and then the final weekend was great. Phenomenal basketball. Yeah. And it was really fun to have three of the four final four teams be teams that hadn't won before. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not enough of a fan where I remember these things. Like, I feel great about it right now. And I'm sure in a year I will not be able to name more than one final four team. You're more serious fans. Like, do you actually have a sense of, like, where this ranks in the pantheon of Final Fours? Or uh, at least, like, in the last 10 to 20 years? Is there another one that's kind of close to it that I've forgotten about? It's it's hard because um, in terms of what will be remembered, oftentimes what gets remembered are uh, star players who either made their mark in that tournament or went on to do other things. So you mm-hmm. think about, like, the, the Bird Magic mm-hmm. tournament, like, you have those stars, you know, or uh, particularly like dramatic runs. I actually think the Virginia run and the Virginia losing to a 16 and then winning. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I actually think it, that's going to be the narrative that will that will continue on in this. I think. I mean, there is also the the the, the looming personality of this tournament. Um, not, maybe not personality, but figure of the tournament was Zion. So this will be the the one where Zion, like we thought, was going to uh-huh. be like his kind of mark coronation, yeah. and then right. didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Well, and Sarah, I mean, because I also assume it's maybe stickier because of uh, your team affiliation. Like, are there Indiana runs that stick oh, in your memory? Then? Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So when I think of years that I really remember, obviously 87, um, when Indiana wins in the Steve Alford era, Bobby Knight era. Um, the Keith Smart era. How did that feel? Because like, I'm, I'm asking as a Minnesotan where we never win anything. Like, how does that feel to have your team mm-hmm. in your favorite sporting event maybe like win it all like what does that what does that feel like the next day you're on top of the world right and such that a couple months later 
we were in a pizza hut in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Steve Alford and his girlfriend walk into that pizza oh. hut, and I got to go get his autograph, right? And it's kind of funny now as a college professor and thinking Steve Alford was just <laughs> like a 22-year-old college senior, but mm-hmm. I still have that autograph on a sticky note because that was all we could find to write on from my mom's purse. So they always say things like, like, like if you, like, Joe Namath never has to pay for a meal again mm-hmm. in New York City. Like, mm-hmm. did somebody buy Steve Alford's Pizza Hut that night? You like, know, we didn't. We probably <laughs> should have. But I think that um, Steve Alford can can go anywhere in Indiana and, and get a free meal. Um, Bob Knight has been back on Indiana's campus in the last couple mm. of weeks, too. He's in poor health. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's been, uh, I think, at a baseball game. And, you know, and so there's still, yeah, there's the 87 team will always sure. be. Close in the hearts. Um, you know, in the late 90s, Indiana had a run in the tournament beating, knocking off Duke, kind of a surprise knockoff. And that was a fu- that was an end to a game I'll never mm-hmm. remember because Duke fouled, uh, fouled IU on a, a three-point shot right mm-hmm. at the end of the buzzer. And, you know, and Indiana made the free throws and won. And, mm-hmm. yeah, so I do think a lot of my memories are more associated to team than, mm-hmm. than tournament. Well, it's a, I guess where I was headed with it um, was we've talked a few times about, I guess, memory of sports and the golden age phenomenon. And I think mostly that came up with professional sports, which is more uh, not permanent but stable, right? Because you have people with 15-year careers in that sport. The teams don't change as much over time. Whereas I mean, there's something, I don't want to say dispensable about it, but like it's easy for a casual fan like me suddenly to check in in March, not know anything about these teams, just kind of enjoy it for what it is, and then sure. forget about it for a year, do the whole cycle over again. Um, and so unless I had like a kind of program commitment and the Gophers were regularly doing well, like I don't think I would ever remember much about the NCAA. I mean, I mean except the only golden age I can go back to is UCLA because you had a run of so many championships right, right. under the same coach with a couple of players who stuck for so long and are just kind of iconic right. figures. Absolutely. I do think it says something about the role of the college coach and those legacies, dynasties really, because the play o- the players are turning over so much more mm-hmm. than they are in professional sports, but you know, you, you really get the legacy of the coach over time. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, and I mean this in all seriousness, that one person at this table will remember this tournament um, and this will tie into something we talk about later because you actually had stakes in that game, act, even though you don't care about Virginia. Yeah. But yeah. but because mm-hmm. in our pool you were like if Virginia wins, mm-hmm. you win the pool. So I I have only once in my life won my NCAA tournament pool, and it mm-hmm. was it was the Flintstones when the uh, Mateen Cleaves led Michigan State to a championship. So I remember that tournament in such a different way because I had stakes all the way through that. Well, which maybe uh, indirectly raises something we might come back to in the second segment, which is gambling. Now, we're not gambling. There is no money attached here. There, there's uh, some food sitting in front of me, but there's nothing really at stake in that sense. But that's as close to gambling as I actually get. And mm-hmm. so it did give me a kind of investment that I don't normally have in that game. Like it, it mostly reminded me of like the times I did play fantasy football and baseball. Like I watched it differently. And in a sense, like, it did make it more meaningful to me that I actually needed Virginia to win, not just the semifinal, but the mm-hmm. final. And the way they did it was exciting. And so I, I, um, I, I was 
Uh, and that's a little bit of bitterness for me. I would like to publicly contest CBS's <laughs> scoring of tournament brackets. Had we used my family's scoring, I would have won. But, um, well, you know. And it's just coincidence <laughs> that I set up the scoring format before this all started. So I didn't uh, know how it would work out. So, so in, in light of that, and again, I don't want to get out of, out of ahead of maybe a conversation for segment two, but um, have, have either of you ever watched a game in a sports book? I've I've watched the end of the when the Gophers won the NIT in the late nineties. I can't remember is that ninety seven or whatever. Um, our family happened to be on vacation in Las Vegas, uh, and as somebody who was underage and a Bethel student, like there's not a ton for me to do in Las Vegas but go to movies. So I actually watched a lot of sports, and I watched that the Gophers. So I watched my team win the NIT championship in a packed sports book. And it was interesting because everybody was really into that game. Now they were interested in what the line on the game mm-hmm. was, but it but everyone in that room had stakes, and it was really really fun. And then kind of gross too because it's like <laughs> yeah. I was excited because the Gophers won, and this guy's excited because they covered the spread. Yeah. Well, why don't we come back to this in the second segment when we talk about at least one of the two sports that's on the docket? Because yeah. I, I had a question for you about how you watch that sport given that's an important way that people interact with it. Certainly. Before before we take a break and throw this over to the next segment, um, I just want to come in with a uh, brief financial update. Uh, We we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I promised some hard numbers at the end of the NCAA tournament. So since my uh, picks finished well down the bracket, um, I thought I would just pitch in here some numbers. Um, Would you care to guess how much of its revenue the NCAA generates from its tournament championship? Percentage-wise, you mean? Yes. 90 or something. Does that include conference championships or just the and just the tournament? NCAA. Oh, uh, yeah. I, w- I mean, I would guess 85, 90, yeah. Okay. Does that seem high? I'm trying to read facial expressions that Sorry. are listening. I read this I'm somewhere. Wondering if, I'm wondering if I, if I asked it wrong. Well, I read it somewhere and it said 90. Like 90% of the NCAA's revenue comes from March Madness. That... Again, I, I think I may have been unclear, so let okay. me let me break it down here. So, uh, about eighty-five percent of the NCAA's income comes from TV contracts. Now, it's true that those TV contracts connect directly to March Madness so because they don't. I mean, I thought we talked about this before. With football, is different than basketball. That's here, correct. Right? Yeah, correct. The actual tournament championships themselves—that is, ticket sales, you know, venue oh, receipts—only oh, oh, okay. yeah. account for about fifteen, um, or about, actually about ten percent okay. of. NCAA, I would have actually guessed lower. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. If that was the question, I would have yeah. gotten yeah. lower. Yeah. So the NCAA eclipsed a billion dollars for the first time. Uh, in 2018, they repeated Good for them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> they're on pace to repeat it in 2019 as well. Uh, but uh, about 850 million of that comes from t- con- TV contract. Another 100 million or so comes from um, uh, from venues, and then other things are like investments mm-hmm. and uh, some licensing fees, things like that. So I've often this season been on the side of the we should be paying athletes, right? Then CWA is this wicked corporate entity that uh, hides in their nonprofit status, but is raking in all this money. Yep. Um, so let me play the devil's advocate who says, because of that, not only are scholarships available to some people who otherwise mm-hmm. wouldn't get them, but there are certain sports that can be supported that otherwise would not be supported. Correct. So last week we had a basketball coach, which not here, but other places is a money sport. But would we be able to offer volleyball as much? Would we offer swimming? Would, I mean, especially this ends up affecting women's sports. Absolutely. Right. I mean, the, so I guess mostly I'm thinking of the Olympic sports, but even at the NCAA, I mean, things like baseball, right, are not big money sports. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, like, is that is that a valid argument in your minds? Like, I think with, it is, without actually. that, we would not be able to have the kind of panoply of athletic competition that we have, which would drastically reduce the availability to students of that kind of learning last experience. year uh, in a one-time move. The NCAA was so profitable. It did a $200 million disbursement uh, to NCAA uh, member colleges. Mm. Um, and presumably, that a lot of that money would go to things that to, to foster sports that would, aren't normally profitable mm. for those schools. And so there is something about that. I think, there, I think it's entirely possible to have a complex view of the NCAA mm-hmm. and see that it does some just things and some pretty unjust things at the same time. I mean, it might be an interesting kind of international comparative question to ask because without knowing a lot about this, my sense is... Uh, Higher ed exists at a different kind of scale in a place like Europe, but sports sure. is nothing like it. I mean, Absolutely. Right? Like club competition is probably the closest equivalent. But you still have people of that age spending even more time honing their skills in their sports, but it's happening through things like professional clubs. It's happening through national Olympic federations. And so the money is still there. It's just funneled in, in different kinds of directions, and those athletes are still there. They're just not going to college to do it. Correct. Okay. So... Well, why don't we uh, check in with Sam here? We had three to see last week. Were they worth the watch? All right. So Chris said we should watch, or Chris Garrett said we should watch the Women's Hockey World Championships. The U.S. The U.S. won their ninth title, their fifth consecutive in a shootout over Finland. So they dominated every mm-hmm. game, and then they in the finals it was two and one. The host in a shootout. Finns too. Yeah. So, I mean, good yeah. atmosphere. So I'm going to give you a worth the watch on that. Uh, mine, I said the Boston Marathon. I don't know how to figure this, but uh, uh, Lawrence uh, Chirano of Kenya won the men's foot race by just one second, so I'm going to call that a worth the watch on mm-hmm. a sprint to the finish. Uh, Worknesh Degefa of Ethiopia won the women's foot race, and the uh, wheelchair winners were Daniel Romanchuk from the U.S. and Manuela Shar from Switzerland. Are there... It's interesting. I mean, I assume most marathons have a wheelchair division, too. I'm trying to think of other sports where you have this happening. Where they're running in parallel Yeah, because like otherwise, yeah. I mean, in a sense, we segregate. There's the Summer Olympics, then there's the Summer Special Olympics, right? But we right. don't actually – I mean, they're consecutive, I think, these days in Olympic years, but they're not happening simultaneously. So I was just trying to think of another example of where that would happen. Yeah, I don't I, – that I don't know. I that, yeah. Okay. Um, and and I think you mean the Paralympics and not the Special Olympics, or oh, that's, that's right. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. yes. Are they separate events? Yes. Those are different things. They're different. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then Chris Moore said that we should watch uh, the 2019 Masters. I'm going to say not good. worth the watch. I don't think what? anybody watched this. I'm kidding. <laughs> Tiger Woods Woods won his fifth Masters okay. in his so 15th. So I moved this major. last <clears throat> in the list because I have to confess that on Friday or Saturday when I was working on the script for this, I put in a snarky kind of bullet point uh, saying like uh, Chris Moore convinced me that. Uh, I should have been watching the Masters. Tell me what happened because I didn't watch it all. And I didn't actually watch it all. But <laughs> we have our, st- I mean, obviously we've got our case right here. Uh, I mean, I assume you did watch some of this. Like, uh, how compelling yeah. was it as compelling as I'd imagine? Yeah, it, it was be? fantastic okay. uh, because we've, it, it fits in with his narrative stories, right? We have the narrative story of Maryland, Baltimore County upsetting Virginia and then Virginia turning the corner the next year, winning the whole thing. Tiger Woods, uh, the most dominant golfer ever at the time that he was dominant. I'm not prepared to say he's the greatest golfer ever. That plenty of people would, but I'm I, I my heart's with Jack still. Um, but Tiger um, has spent 11 years in the wilderness in a couple cases, literally, uh, and has come back from back injuries, come back from knee injuries, come back from personal issues, uh, which is a euphemism for lots of things, and. Won, a f- won his 15th major and his 5th Masters. 
Um, and that's uh, that's an incredible narrative story, even if he never wins another one. Okay, how so? How incredible is it? And I have to confess, I didn't do any research on this, but I've I've struggled a little bit to try to come up with <laughs> anything remotely comparable to something like this. Now, Gary Player right went what twelve or thirteen years in between major victories, mm-hmm. and that you know so that's interesting to come back that late in your career and win a major, but. To have gone through this kind of valley of your career and then ascend, I, I don't know that any other sport has a story quite like this. We've had other golfers win their last major around this same age as Tiger. Um, but, and I was talking with Sam about this off air, there seems to be a difference between Tiger winning now and, say, Jack Nicholas winning his last Masters in 86. Right. right, and all you have to do is go back to 1986 and look at a picture of someone in your family who was 46 years old. Mm-hmm. And tell me just visually how old that person looked. Like, 46 years old was different in 1986 than 43 is in 2019. Just And that's for the general population, not to mention highly trained athletes mm-hmm. who are you know who who are meticulously pay attention to what they're doing in all ways mm-hmm. so so yeah I, I just i don't i don't know it's almost like adjusting for inflation what does 43 mean now when you have the super bowl winning quarterback this year was 41 <laughs> like like what is the what do those things mean but but uh, to, to i think to your point um that's the age is one thing that's not it but it's, it's the it's the how far right. how deep the uh sort of sense of this is never going to happen again and right. then how to this high, comeback. And how high it had been on the exactly other side. Mm-hmm. like i mean so i'll ask it this way is there another sport where this could even happen like I'm, i can't imagine how it would work in a team sport where you are yeah. taking like three to five years off where you're not physically capable of competing and then suddenly somehow you make the team, you're the starter, you take them to the Super Bowl, and you win again. Like, and it's not just taking a break. It, it's I think it's also sort of how we understood this person in the culture from somebody who, I mean, it, you in, back at his peak, people talked about, well, you had Ali, you had Jordan, you had Tiger Woods in terms of the most recognizable athletes mm-hmm. in the world, most famous athletes in the world. And then to 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 dip down like this uh, for a variety of mm-hmm. reasons and then to to have this, this sort of comeback. So it's not just your skills diminished, but also like how we regard this person. And it's not that we regard him the same way we did back then, because there's right. a lot of other pieces to this. But I think the story is so much more complicated. And, and there's there's almost no one who's been at that level um, in anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe a, an exit question here of will he win another? I mean, like, is, is he now back or was this a uh, spontaneous, staggering, wonderful, never to be duplicated event? So predict the future. Predict the future. I, I don't think the chances of him winning another are zero, but mm. I think they're very low. Mm. Uh, I think his um, Sam to Sam's point, forty three does not look like forty three did in nineteen eighty six, and yet um, this is a person who's come back from significant health issues, and he has to choose his rounds carefully. Even this year, he was very selective in terms of the tournaments he played and getting healthy for the Masters. It's within his power. I think he's playing very very good golf right now, but there's a but it's also he is one of many skilled golfers now. He is not this dominant force anymore. I think it's also an interesting mental question in terms of how he handles the win. It's one thing to put every ounce of your mental and physical energy into mounting a comeback. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sustaining that, I think, is a totally different question. Now, the thing he has going for him, though, is he's, I believe, four behind Jack at this point for majors, right? That's correct. So he actually, there is a motivating factor Mm -hmm. to say, 
the clock's ticking, but I could still do this. My prediction, if we're just throwing out predictions based on nothing, is he's not going to get to 19, but there will be one more, and it won't be immediate. I actually think we're going to get the equivalent of Jack at 46 as maybe Tiger at 51 or something. Ooh. Like, like, like all of a sudden, like, out of nowhere, and it'll be at Augusta. It'll be because that's a course he knows. That's a mm-hmm. course. It's a smaller field, those types of things. Like, uh, that, I mean, that's based on nothing, but that's gonna, we're going to see. Uh, a f- he's going to win a major later than Jack did, and that will be his his um, 16th and last. Write it down, folks. April 17, 2019 <laughs> at 10.30 Central Daylight Time. Sam Mulberry with the prediction. Um, before we leave golf, uh, I feel like I need to do a little penance for having taken the Masters so flippantly. And so let me share with you a little bit of golf history. This mm-hmm. actually came from one of my students. So I'm teaching a World War II class right now that's a gen ed course. And one of my favorite things about teaching is when students kind of pick up on interests that you have and then just for no reason whatsoever except they wanted to share, they pass along a, hey, did you know this kind of thing? And so I had mentioned several times that I'm a baseball fan. I've got four baseball players in the course. They're doing a baseball history of World War II project. And so a couple of days ago, before the, ma- the Masters started, one of my students, Cole Peterson, so thank you, Cole, said, mm-hmm. you might be interested about what happened to golf during World War II. Hmm. So did you know, for example, that the British Open was not contested from 1939 to 1945, which is probably oh, not surprising. Makes sense. Uh, but the U.S. Open was not contested from 1942 to 1945. Hmm. And in fact, in 1943, none of the four majors was contested. And so mostly the story he shared with me was that 1942 was a famous Masters because it was a duel between, I actually have to remind myself, Byron Nelson beat Ben Hogan uh, in a one-stroke uh, by, in an 18-hole playoff in the Masters. That was 42. Yeah. And then there wasn't one the next year. Do you know what the Ma- what Augusta National was doing that whole time? No. I didn't know if this was like on the Masters every once in a while. Oh, no, I have no idea. They grazed cattle and raised turkeys. That was the only way to keep Augusta National open. It was Bobby Jones' idea was hmm. we should just hire out all that grass and graze cattle and we'll take enough income to get through for a year. So wow. I, I that's really, interesting. So there you go. A little bit of a little bit of golf history. I, I do want to point out you didn't make a prediction for Tiger, though. If we all made predictions, I want to know. Did yours. we all make predictions? We all did. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He will retire and never play golf again. Okay. Whoa. You heard it here. All right. <laughs> yeah, you can take that to the bank. Okay. Hey, speaking of sports that I have very little interest in, we're going to come back in a segment, <laughs> and Sam and Sarah are going to try to convince me that I should be a bigger fan of two kinds of sports where humans go around something oval shaped on something else back in a moment she pulls a shade it's just another sunny sunday she dodges the light light blanche du Bright colors fade away on such a sunny Sunday. This week in sports history. St. Louis, Missouri, April 17th, 1892. The Browns host the first Sunday baseball in National League history, losing to the Cincinnati Reds 5-2. While Sunday baseball had been part of the defunct American Association, the country's oldest professional league had long avoided playing on the Sabbath. Boston, Massachusetts, April 18th, 1966. Bill Russell is announced as a player coach of the Boston Celtics, the first African-American in NBA history to serve as a head coach. Russell averages over 20 rebounds in 40 minutes per game, and the Celtics finish 60-21, but lose to Will Chamberlain's Philadelphia 76ers in the playoffs, snapping the Celts' run of eight straight championships. Boston, Massachusetts, April 19, 1897. John J. McDermott wins the inaugural running of the Boston Marathon. 
finishing in just over 2 hours and 55 minutes, almost 40 minutes slower than the 2018 winner, Yuki Kawauchi of Japan. Motegi Japan, April 20th, 2008. Danica Patrick becomes the first woman to win an IndyCar race, overtaking Helio Castroneves in the final laps of the Indy Japan 300. Exactly right, so Danica Patrick looks like will be shown in second place as Danica now trying to take advantage of the fuel strategy oh, and she pulls up on Elio Castroneves. He's out of fuel or is he? They're going side by side. Danica Patrick is the leader, Mark Jace, as she comes to the line looking to complete 198 laps. We saw Danica's mom already celebrating as the white flag came out. They know she can make it on the fuel. Here comes Danica Patrick turn through turn number three, now on to turn four, only a few hundred yards away from making history. Danica Patrick will win at Motegi. Danica is the winner of the Indy Japan 300. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Go Speed Racer, Go Speed Racer, Go Speed Racer, Go! He's often flying as he guns a car around the track. He's jamming down the pedal like he's never coming back. Adventures waiting just ahead. Go speed racer, go speed racer, go speed racer, go! All right, we're back for segment two, and uh, I'm very actually excited about this. I've, I've for a while wanted to do a different kind of sport. We've done mm-hmm. a lot of baseball and football we started with we've done a lot of basketball in march of course mm-hmm. we're going to talk about hockey next week so we're kind of covering the the standard pro team sports but there's some other really significant sports that have uh, extensive histories deep fan bases that i know almost nothing about and so fortunately we've got a couple of in-house experts on various kinds of racing so we've brought in well sam was already here and we kind of got hints the last week or two that sam is interested in horse racing I am. he shared a couple of uh, things for us to watch and we also knew that our friend Sarah Shady of Indiana is a big fan of auto racing. Now, uh, I'm going to start with it. Well, we'll come back to it. I was going to ask if you like uh, IndyCar, NASCAR, or both, but I have a feeling you'll talk about this. I will talk about okay, that. So indeed. basically, the, 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 the kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek idea here is you're going to try to convince me that I, sh- I don't know if enjoy these sports is, that might be too high a bar to set, but help me to appreciate them, help me mm. to understand them, help me to get them, and maybe have some deeper level of appreciation. Chris Moore, I don't know if you're kind of can agnostic I, on this. I just can, kind can of roped I, can, you can into I, this. Can I be your uh, your therapist for a second here, Chris? Yeah, so t- tell me, is there a specific reason that, A, you lump these two things together, and B, that you find them less appealing? Oh, I guess I should have to make the case of why. So I, I, so I will say, first of all, because I don't know them. Okay. I wasn't raised with them in any way. I don't have models apart from you two of what it looks like to be a fan of them and to admire them. Uh, apart from taking my kids to Churchill Downs once, I've never spent a moment at these kind of facilities before. Uh, and I basically don't like long-distance racing. Like mm. I enjoy short-distance track and swimming a great deal. Okay. I do not enjoy the long-haul strategy of this. Now, I... Like, what do you think these horses are doing, Chris? No, I, I was thinking of auto racing. I actually, I have to admit, I, I lumped them together because I wanted an excuse to have Sarah and Sam talking sure. for, a, for a while. Cause, can uh, I ask one more follow-up question just before we turn this well, over? Well, can I just say, I actually like horse racing. I was playing a, I was oh, playing a, I was playing a right. character for a while there, but you just got me to admit it. Like, I was watching a Secretariat clip yesterday, and like I almost cried. I, I actually love horse racing. Do Sorry, you, Sarah. Right. To the extent that you are troubled by these sports, now having admitted that now that you're more ambivalent than we thought, um, is part of the problem, because this is the problem for me, I, I enjoy these when I'm watching them with friends, I never seek them out, and I think part of it is because unlike 
track, mm-hmm. basketball, swimming, baseball. Mm-hmm. The primary engine of success or failure is not the human. Mm. I would beg to differ, but I don't, we'll get to that. Well, I don't... I, like, I would put Secretariat on the list of the 20 greatest athletes of the 20th century and have no qualms about that. Okay, Cars are a little bit different, I will admit. So we have to talk about technology and the human at some point here. Sure. But, okay, I, this, is, right. this is not really about me. This is really <laughs> about bringing in Sarah and, and getting Sam to, uh, to play an expert role here. And so the question that I gave you to open up is kind of our version of our usual question, which is what's your sports story? And I, I think I framed it this way. What is your history with racing? Like, when did you get interested? Why did you get interested? How long have you been interested? And we'll start there. Well, listeners who heard my defense of Bobby Knight may remember that I was born and raised in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And if you're born and raised in Indiana, you grow up with a love of two things, college basketball and the Indianapolis 500. Um, my story goes even deeper than just general Hoosierdom, though, because I was born to a father who... Um, over 40 years ago went in with two other friends that he worked with and bought um, some tickets to the Indy 500 and over four decades has only missed the race once Um, and uh, they worked their way up trading their tickets in for you know really good seats that they've held on to for years now Um, and my dad and his two friends Roger and David would always pack up a big van of all of the kids and take us to watch the time trials um, the week before the races and so I grew up being on the track watching the well not being on the track being (laughs) in the stands watching the races tracking the drivers knowing them as heroes Um, And then very recently, when my oldest son turned 10, he was allowed to go to the Indy 500. He now has caught the bug. I've been uh, with my dad and my son a couple of years um, in the last five years. So Hmm. love it. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's a variation on something I've said many times, which is I can't separate my love of sports from my relationship with my dad and now with Mm. my son. And so that that makes a lot of sense to me. And then conversely, why I don't have any knowledge of auto racing is my dad couldn't care less about this, right? Uh, Sam, is it a family kind of legacy? It absolutely is. So I didn't, I was not aware that horses raced until 1985 when uh, Minnesota built uh, what was then Canterbury Downs Mm. and is now Canterbury Park. Uh, and we used to go on uh, – the great thing about, about about Canterbury, at least when I was a kid, is you could just bring a cooler in. So, like, you didn't – it was really cheap for my parents to get in and then for kids it was free. Um, and you could bring a cooler with all your food. So you didn't have to spend a dime on anything. So we would pack a big cooler. We'd go – sometimes just our family. Sometimes we'd go with um, friends of the family. And it was sort of like a, a full-day picnic that was punctuated by – by these horses that were racing and you got to uh, the thing that i that i initially loved about it is you got to get up close so as a kid going to twins games you know my family we didn't have a lot of money so you always sat in the upper deck at the metrodome and everything seems so far away you go to canterbury you go to the 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 paddock area and you can you can almost touch the horses you could look you look the jockeys in the eye and when they parade by like you're really close and even when the race ends there is no like special seating section, so you can walk right up to as close as you can get to the track, and those horses thunder past you, and it's so loud, and it's and and, it, and there's so much sort of raw power going right by you. So as a kid, I loved that. And then you know you'd go with your parents, and they'd be like, "Oh, pick a horse out of here," you know, and, and so it starts by just like picking the horses with silly names or had a name of somebody you knew or something like that. Um, 
and or you like the color or you like the way the horse looked and then eventually you learn about the math you learn about odds and you're like oh okay so now i'm you know and 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 you learn i mean there's a lot of math and kind of analytics embedded into it so i sort of fell in love with that and and um, I'm not a huge pageantry guy, but horse racing has plenty of it. And the other thing that I loved about it is it's a full day, but there are 10 to 12 races. So like, so there, it's like there's 10 to 12 individual sporting events with different athletes each time. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's always another chance. There's always another thing. It doesn't – I mean, when you watch the, the – uh, Kentucky Derby on TV, they don't always, you're not paying attention to the other races. It's the, it seems like this long build up to two minutes, but when you're at the track every half an hour, there's another race and you do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And then, so I just loved it. So I think we're starting to get answers to the second question, which is what, what's, um, help us on, that's not, it's a, I guess imperative. Help me understand the appeal of the, what's, but I guess what I was trying to get is what's distinctive about these races, whether it's, uh, you could talk about rules here, but I think probably strategy might be something to talk about. And then both of you are also getting at what I guess I'd call culture, mm-hmm. you know, not even just mm-hmm. the actual like competition itself, but everything surrounding it, including uh, the kind of pageantry that Sam talked about and the kind of fan experience uh, that Sarah, you talked about. Um, Help me understand what what's what's especially appealing about your favorite racing sport. Um, let me talk about race auto racing a little bit. Um, first, just as an overview, in the U.S., the two main leagues are IndyCar, which is open car racing, and NASCAR. Um, both of them have storied histories going back to around 1905. Um, very different cultures, and I can get more into that. And then we have to throw in here as well Formula One, which is really seen as the pinnacle of auto racing, although Formula One drivers kind of move back and forth between IndyCar and Formula One. Um, and that would be more the European or, or world circuit. I kind of think of it as the FIFA of um, mm-hmm. of, auto, of auto racing. Can I interrupt just quick? Do fans move back and forth between Indy car and NASCAR because you said they're very different cultures but right yeah it's interesting because um, about 20 years ago the Indy 500 or the Indianapolis Motor Speedway started hosting the Brickyard 400 Mm -hmm. a NASCAR race um, every August and it just didn't take the Mm. same way the fan base is is very different um, the history of NASCAR is very much tied to Southern identity mm-hmm. and Southern culture. I mean, it actually has its history in bootlegging in the moonshine industry mm-hmm. of, you know, um, a, a, and then tied to a dirt track in Daytona as well. Um, and so it's formalized w- after prohibition when bootleg racers, you know, want to actually keep mm-hmm. using their skills. Um, and so it actually, I mean, I think it's an American cultural difference between in a lot of ways, uh, the differences in the culture of the East Coast, West Coast and Midwest versus mm. the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any fans that go back and forth between the two, it would probably be the Midwestern fans. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think in in terms of horse racing, one of the strategic things that I find really interesting um, that only can exist when you're talking about animals and not human beings is the idea of like breeding Mm -hmm. horse. I mean, so I was talking to my son and 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 we were talking this morning, and he said he asked how the the horse who won the Kentucky Derby last year is doing this year, and I'm like, oh no, you don't race that horse after. I mean, that that horse's value comes in in its children mm-hmm. and and the idea that you know a horse is mature and ready to race around age two or age three so it's not you don't have to wait a long time to see the offspring of championship horses so like i remember as a kid being fascinated by 
literal dynasties you know that mm-hmm. that that a horse that um you know that 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 maybe his two parents were or her two parents were these dominant horses and like and how did this come down like i find that really fascinating the other thing that interests me about horse racing um is obviously this is this is a sport for the rich in terms of like owning horses and things like that at the same time if the four of us got together everyone that we knew we would never be able to buy an nba team mm-hmm. never be able to buy an nfl team mm-hmm. but i could imagine mm-hmm. i know enough people not that they're interested but in terms of the finances they have where we could buy a stake in a racehorse like they're the it's a really hard it's a really rich person thing to do but like the bar to entry is much lower i remember as a kid thinking like Oh, like I could imagine, like what if you what if you owned a horse? If you went to a horse auction, you owned it, and mm-hmm. you had enough money to pay for this. And mm-hmm. what if that happened to be this like mm-hmm. kind of sports moviest magical horse that like mm-hmm. you know made its way to the Derby and, and like and just how interesting because there's always stories like that. You know, when you watch the Derby, it's there are these like big farms and things like that, but there's always these unique stories of this is a family owned horse and they own this like these like two racehorses and that's it or this one horse well maybe that gets to a, a contrast i had set up that might not be true which is i contrasted these two what i call team sports right and mm-hmm. in a sense like horse racing doesn't seem that way except like i would assume like to extent like there's a stable and there's a trainer mm-hmm. right there is a oh, kind yeah. of team but yeah so one question i'll get is like how much does that matter to you as a fan and then likewise, I know with racing, the, the team matters a great deal. And that's what sure. I just don't understand. Like yeah. the strategy of that, the like ownership structure of that, the kind of like athletic labor and how that relates to it. Yeah, so. I, I would say in horse racing, there is definitely team identity. Like, I mean, you look for like Dwayne Lucas or someone like that is going to have uh, horses in, in major now, stakes do you, races. Do you root for Lucas? That's where I was going for. It's like I don't look at it. I don't tend to look at it that way unless um, – if anything, I tend to almost in dynasty, like hating the Yankees sort of way. It's like, oh, I don't want to see Dwayne Lucas win another derby or something like that. Uh, but I don't I don't particularly care. I'm more interested in uh, I'm more looking at other things as I'm, you know, you know, as I'm looking at that. But there definitely is uh, teams and literal farms, you know, right. and things right. like that. Yeah. Auto racing is very much a team sport. Um, in Formula One, the team's identity comes from um the the engine or the car ownership so you've got Renault and Aston Martin and Ferrari mm-hmm. uh, Mercedes um, in IndyCar racing it comes from the team owner and those are often become family legacies so the Penske the Andretti's mm-hmm. um, uh, and right now actually Honda is just dominating in terms of an engine so you don't break it out in terms of engine maker quite as much in IndyCar anymore Um, But on the particular racing team, I mean, everyone's most familiar with the owner and the driver, but um, the driver has to have incredible athletic ability, and I'll come Mm -hmm. back to that. But on your team, the the pit crew is one of the most important parts of auto racing, and the physical shape and technical shape they have to be in in able to fuel a car and change tires Mm -hmm. in literally seconds um that is incredibly important and then there's a lot of strategy that goes into auto racing and so your team strategists are really important in terms of um basically who's calling the plays into the driver Mm -hmm. when do you want to pass when do you need to drift when do you need to refuel well i would Um, say even if 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 people listen back to the this week in sports mm -hmm. on the danica patrick clip they're talking about she won because of the gasoline strategy they had of like she ran out of fuel just at the right time just as the race was ending where the other person 
didn't situate their fuel right or something. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't understand that, but that's clearly, like, things going on there. And those strategies vary by track as well as by day. The temperature of the track, the level of humidity in the air, the wind speed, all of that mm-hmm. figures into the car's performance. So are you into the science of, of racing? Like, like, And I, what I mean by that is, like, when you're sitting, when you're at the Indy 500, are you thinking about the science of racing at that point? Or, like, what is the vis? Because for me, horse racing is very visceral. Like, what is mm-hmm. that? No, for me, um, auto racing is very visceral. So just the sheer speed and sound mm. of the cars going around the track is unbelievable. And the speed with which they're going... Um, so where we sit is in the third turn. So you have a view of the second turn, the back stretch, third turn, fourth turn, and heading up towards the finish line. We can't see the finish line, but there's jumbotron screens. So you can always see everything. But, I mean, th- every time cars pass a turn, mm-hmm. you're always watching who's going to pass, who's going to crash, how close are they getting to the wall. So there's just this visceral intensity of watching. Mm-hmm. But there's also a culture of the fans because people hold on to their tickets and year after year you're sitting with the same people. So there's the guy that we don't know but we see once a year who always brings laminated printouts of all the drivers and their cars and colors in order. Um, people in the fans sitting in the same area will all have sets of headphones that they can tune in to the different racing teams and you decide who's going to listen in on which driver's team so you can share the strategy that's going on in the stands and so there's so much to be thinking about and watching besides just cars going around a track. Okay so your uses of the word both of you use the word visceral and that evokes a couple mm-hmm. of questions to me. So the first is um, do you enjoy this on television? Because it seems like a big part of the visceral appeal is the place, the crowd, the sound, and I would also guess smell is probably part of it too, right? I mean, do you then enjoy just watching another kind of race on TV? Or like, I remember when my parents moved to the South, I didn't understand NASCAR at all, and my first kind of introduction to it was going to the grocery store, food line on a Saturday or Sunday, and listening to a radio broadcast, and I really couldn't get that. Like, TV, I could maybe get, I could imagine what you're talking about in the place, but like... I mean, it, does it does it work? Does it translate in the same way? Like the NFL basically is a TV show, right? For most people, it seems like this is much more the fan experience is about place, sense, feel. Here's what here's what I would say in terms of horse racing. If I like, I I will watch great horse. So like, I'll watch the Breeders' Cup day. I don't do this every year, but like the Breeders' Cup is like the closest thing to the Super Bowl. I mean, you'd think the the Derby is a singular race, things like that, but the Breeders' Cup is at the end of the year when all of the best horses and it's one last day where everything's a big stakes race. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, I remember as a kid watching that day on TV, and that was very fun. Um, And I love the Derby, and I love the Triple Crown races, but um, other than that, I would uh, even in even with those, I would rather spend a day looking at or, or going to Canterbury and watching real horses, even though they're, the quality of those horses doesn't match up to what you're going to see at the highest level because the live experience to me is far more powerful. But I would watch those things and do at times watch those mm-hmm. things. But I'm not going to watch a, you know a random day at Santa Anita on TV. I'm no interest, mm. not no interest. But it, the I just don't know why I, I there'd be so many other things I'd rather do. Right. 
Um, I will watch IndyCar races on TV. I always watch the Indy 500 on TV if I'm not at the race. My son is now so interested in IndyCar racing that he will tape and or watch live every single race in the IndyCar circuit. And so I also will sit now down with him to watch race. But what's interesting about watching um, the race on TV is is it's uh, you don't have the visceral fact of being there, the sounds and smells, but you have the announcers going through all the team strategies mm-hmm. with you, mm-hmm. who's on what level of fuel where everybody's tires are you know and so you're kind of that same fan experience of wondering what's going to happen and kind of having your own idea of what the strategy should be and will the team go that way or not um it's interesting and i mean this is something that i actually struggle with but i think something that's fairly unique about auto racing is the likelihood that uh, the athlete could die every mm. single time. That was my next question because I think it's true for both, but mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for auto racing. And and so I think that is a difference in terms of seeing a wreck on TV versus seeing it live mm-hmm. are very um, emotionally very different things. Mm. I can kind of be worried about a driver if I see a wreck on TV, but when you're watching it live, that's emotionally troubling Hmm. yeah and i would say that the troubling thing with horse racing is that um it doesn't happen a lot Hmm. but i mean it's it's i don't i don't know if there's instance i'm sure there are instances of jockeys getting fatally wounded i I don't know but but the what's more likely is that the horse gets injured and Mm um animals are more disposable (laughs) in our world so like we don't it's not the same thing like if you see if you're at a race and a driver dies like that's a different thing like you almost in horse racing like it's a tragedy but you're like this happens like this is like this is the kind of, you wouldn't say if a, if a driver dies in a in an indy car race you wouldn't say well that happens that's one of the it's like you would say we need to make sure this never happens again horse racing they want they don't want it to happen but there is a sense of like yeah, this this happens sometimes. It does but you know what strikes me as being different is that injury is a part of every single sport but what is different in horse racing is you can have injuries that do not seem life-threatening but Certainly. because the nature of that horse was bred for that purpose and right. it would be cruel to keep them alive absolutely with that kind of injury it becomes death yep. all of a sudden mm-hmm. yeah so i mean so yeah a driver's not going to get injured and get put down but right. a horse would absolutely yeah. Yeah. right and that's what i mean by the dispo yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like yeah, no, this I is just you write this off as this is one of the things that can happen yeah. one of the most remarkable things to me about auto racing is actually the physical and mental stamina of the drivers I mean, they are incredible athletes the intense mental focus that it takes to keep a car moving at that speed for a few hours with no half time no mm, right i mean yep. you, you slow down for under eight seconds at your pit stop but you're not getting out of the car you're not mm. stopping um on the track the heat is around 120 degrees plus and you're in a fireproof suit uh the g forces put uh, you know the strain on the body so the uh, an athlete's upper body has to be an impeccable strength um and you know if anyone's kind of interested in this a couple great um human interest introductory stories to auto racing there's a great documentary on netflix called uh senna that traces the life of amartya senna one of the best uh formula one racers a brazilian and then uh netflix is also doing a show now called formula one drive to survive where they trace drivers and racing teams throughout a season so the show that's on right now traces last year's 2018 season but you learn so much about the drivers the teams the politics of the sport Mm -hmm. and and you realize how remarkable these drivers are 
um, and in their mental acknowledgement that I might die today. And, and how do you continue to perform under those contexts? Hmm. Well, you two, we're out of time, but this is uh, it's been really fascinating. I feel like we could do a sequel segment to this because we didn't even get to gambling. There are a few other things on my list that we didn't really get to talk about, change over time. So maybe we'll do this again sometime. This I'm actually raises for me either further complexities of what makes a sport. And I'd like to oh, come yeah. back to that too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we'll be right back to wrap up this episode. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. Black winding down. It's time for three to see you. Sam. All right. The last four NBA finals have featured the Warriors and the Cavaliers. Uh, the Warriors are still the number one seed in the West once again. Uh, but the East is up for grabs uh, since LeBron is out of the picture. So what's ex- what I think we should be watching is the Eastern Conference NBA playoffs because we're we are seeing the next generation of stars finally get their shot. Someone's going to be in the uh, in the finals this year coming out of the East. So looking for looking at people like Giannis, uh, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Kawhi Leonard, Kyrie Irving. I, we're going to see the team that makes it to the finals might not be the next big thing, but we're going to see throughout the Eastern Conference playoffs some of these stars get an opportunity to advance further than they have in the past. They are really fun to watch. Okay, the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs ends this weekend. Uh, I think last night Chris's Columbus Blue Jackets swept the mighty Tampa Bay Lightning. This is a huge upset. This is an eight seed over a one seed. I turned on Twitter this morning. The first thing I saw was Tampa Bay's feed apologizing with like this three paragraph tweet. Um, this is not the outcome we wanted. We're sorry. Uh, it was interesting. Anyway, right. Right now, Blue Jackets. we're in the middle of the first round. Only one series is tied 2-2 two to two after the Winnipeg Jets beat the St. Louis Blues in a game four overtime. So one way or another, some team will have a chance to close out the series Saturday night in game six. Otherwise, we'll do game seven in Winnipeg on Monday night. By the way, come back next week for a special hockey episode. And the NCAA championships in men's and women's gymnastics will take place this weekend. And I'm bringing this up mostly to point out that uh, the NCAA has changed the format for the championships this year. Instead of uh, six schools qualifying for the final competition, the final will feature four on the floor. That's the marketing term for this, with one school out of those four being crowned champion. All right. Are there favorites? Or I don't even know enough about yes, NCAA there gymnastics. Are. Okay. I, yes, there you are. You can Chris. use the internet, everyone. <laughs> Look them up. I'm sorry. That was not fair. Thanks again to Sarah Shady for joining us to especially talk auto racing, but to hang out for the whole episode. It's always it's fun It's been really you. fun. All right. Uh, so we'll be back next week to talk about hockey. Chris, wrap us up. Stick that landing, folks. Go Royals. Go Royals.